The most place, important place is always making sure that we know where the market is headed. The focus will always be to understand the market. Because if you don't understand where the market is headed, anything else you do, you could come up with the best messaging possible. But if you don't know where the market is headed, you might not come up with the right messaging to that particular situation. That's where I would do. Hi there. This is Vijay Damoji Prapu, and you're listening to the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. The show where I go behind the scenes with top go-to-market practitioners to discuss their mindset and tactics. Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. Yes, I've taken a short break, busy with quite a few things, as you all can relate. But hey, less about me. Let's focus on the guest for today. And I'm excited to have Ravi Pendeconti, who is the SVP of Product Management and Marketing at Western Digital. Welcome to the show, Ravi. Excited to have you. Thanks, uh, Vijay. Great to be here. Yeah, so I'm super excited. I've known you over the years, both on the professional side. For a couple of years, I think our careers overlapped at Juniper. More than that, I've known you as a person on a personal basis for maybe, what, 10 years plus. And what stands out for me, Ravi, is yes, as an executive on the professional side, you've had a very awesome skyrocketing career, which I always look up to for inspiration. But at the same time, on the personal side, I enjoy your company. I enjoy your sense of humor and enjoy just being yourself, bringing everyone into the fold. And I think I see, based on what I've studied and researched on you, it's the same qualities that you bring at work as well. Uh, well, Vijay, you have to. Otherwise, you really can't enjoy your day-to-day life, right? So the more we are who we are, the easier it becomes to go get our things done. Absolutely. Terrific. So let me start off the signature question, which I always ask all my guests, which is, how do you define go-to-market? Ah, for me, go-to-market truly is four major pillars. You really can't do any go-to-market strategy, planning, or execution without addressing these four fundamental elements. Number one, you have to understand the market. So understanding the market landscape is absolutely crucial, which essentially means you need to know what's going on in the market, you know who the competition is, so on and so forth. That's number one. Number two, one has to do segmentation of the market. And number three, you have to go out and get the right messaging. And as a marketeer myself, it's never lost on me that without the proper messaging, you probably really are not going to reach your target audience. Finally, you have to work on the right distribution strategy. How are you going to get your product to where it should be? Are you going to use the direct sales force? Are you going to use you know, partner community to get there, so on and so forth? And even if you look at the partner community, you know, you know, are you going to have just the resellers? Are you going to go through distribution stuff? I mean, there's a whole rigmarole of things that one has to work through, which I think becomes important. So it's those four elements that really, for me, constitutes a good go-to market strategy slash execution policy. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally on board and love that. So you cover the key aspects, which starts from obviously the first and foremost, which is the external view, the market understanding. And then you talk about the segmentation and the classic STP, right? Targeting and positioning, 
but you also add on the more important and critical piece. Yes, you've done the research, you've done the segmentation, you've done the positioning and messaging. Now, how do you get that message out to the relevant audience, to the right segments at the right place? So it's an end-to-end. So I completely agree, obviously aligned on that. But let me poke you and drill you into some more aspects, which is that's external view. And then there's the internal view within the company, which is top and foremost is the alignment across product, across marketing, across the sales. And depending on the type of business, if you're SaaS, you'll have customer success. You'll have support, of course, but customer success as well. Right. So how do you work on those elements once you've done that external study? How do you align internally? Which I think you actually do them in parallel. You cannot afford to look at the external elements without actually working on things that you need to align with the various functional organizations within your own company. I think you got to run a parallel effort. And, you know, the other way I also look at this is to do all this as much as we might think we're in the technology space. First and foremost, we are in the P2P business, I believe, which is people to people business. None of this gets done if you really don't go get people excited internally as well to actually believe in what you're trying to do. And what that might actually mean is you have to go ahead and build your bridges with the engineering team so that the product can actually be built in time, making sure that you've got the right feature functionality. You probably have to work with making sure that you've got all the sales elements in motion, the training elements to be looked at. I mean, there's a whole rigmarole of things that one has to do. And as you do this, the benefit is just not making sure that everything is, you know, a well-oiled machinery becomes one. But more importantly, I think as you do this, people are going to be more open to actually leaning in, giving you ideas and suggestions so that their skin is in the game now, which essentially will help you get to market better and faster maybe too. So I would absolutely encourage everyone to go do that both the external things we talked about, you know, whether it's gathering the market data, competitive data, so on and so forth, but not forgetting to do all the things you got to do as directly called out internally in a parallel fashion. Yeah, absolutely. I think that perspective is lost on a lot of marketers, not just marketers, I would say even for a lot of folks within the go-to-market functions across the board, because especially in the B2B world, yes, it's business to business, but a lot of folks not out of intentionally, but it's just that they're swamped or they have a narrower perspective out of various reasons, but they lost this thought that you mentioned is lost, which is at the end of the day, even if it's business to business, it's still person to person. Indeed. It doesn't matter, right? And something that I'm seeing off late, especially the leading B2B organizations and B2B marketing teams are doing very well. I mean, names that come to my mind is Drift, Gong, there are quite a few others who are doing extremely well. And they have hit, obviously, unicorn valuations a lot more. What they're doing is they're bringing in the B2C, the business to consumer go-to-market motions, which is understanding, deep understanding of the consumer, and then delivering those messages, delivering or almost shifting their mindset into, hey, look at us or understand us because of who we are, and more importantly, less of us, but it's more of what you are and who you are, right? Bringing that element. So B2C elements into the B2B world. I'm seeing a lot of that being done today. Absolutely right. And it's kind of really important for us to go make sure that we do that too. 
because some of the attributes of B2B play out in B2C. And as we've already accentuated the point, end of the day, we're in the people-to-people business. And that essentially means that you got to go take care of that as well, which will only help you go meet some of the other elements of your goals as an organization. Yeah, I'd love to drill into more aspects as we go along in this conversation. But shifting on to a more lighter side of things, how do your kids view or tell or describe what you do at work? <laughs> actually, this is interesting to ask, Vijay, because actually my dad, frankly, for a number of years, always thought I was a sales guy. And in some ways, I think he still thinks I'm selling, though I keep telling him, Dad, my job is not sales. My job is to try and understand where the market is headed and then try to come out with the right product ideas and then help you know, create the right messaging and you know, help our sales guys to do what they're supposed to do, but not necessarily as a salesperson. So that's always been a, you know, a constant you know, education to my own dad for the last decade. He seems to understand, but then he falls back and says, no, nah, it's more like a sales job. So, but I'll keep trying. I'll keep trying. <laughs> Yeah. So all credit to your dad, though. I mean, the main thing is, yes, he's right, because we are, even though I hate to use the word business, but we are in the business of selling. It doesn't matter, but you are selling your ideas, you're selling your vision, you're selling that direction that you want others to go to. So yes, you don't, may not have the formal title of a salesman, but he's absolutely right. Well, actually, it's interesting <laughs> you say that. Absolutely interesting you say that. In fact, his pet peeve is that each one of us is actually a salesperson. And I'd ask him, why does he say that? He says, actually, the think about it. I mean, if let's say, you know, when my kids were really young, they didn't want to you know, take their glass of milk in the morning or eat their veggies, I was selling to them, you know, enticing them with something, whether it was an extra hour of TV time or whether it was, you know, getting them some candy, so on and so forth. And his no, whole notion is, you are a sales guy. And in fact, you would say all of us are selling, whether it is trying to go get your family to go out with you and they probably have other ideas, you're selling. So yeah, Vijay, I mean, I think he's a wise man. No wonder he is one of my mentors for sure and continues to be so. But yes, in a way, we're all selling every single day. Actually, I can see your wife jumping up and down when you called out and told, hey, Incentive for your kids is extra TV time and candies. I can imagine and visualize your wife jumping up. Absolutely. (laughs) I hear it already. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) All right. So, by the way, as I mentioned earlier, Ravi, so I've been impressed and inspired by your amazing career growth. So can you share with our listeners and just talk to us about your transition all the way from early days, but more importantly, the inflection points and how you transition and who do you serve today and what got you here today? Thanks, Vijay, being too kind. So a couple of things. I mean, I still recall I started off my career as a hardcore engineer. And as the saying goes, you know, I had a choice given by my parents. You could choose to be an engineer or a doctor. Fantastic set of choices. And most people from the Indian subcontinent can relate to it. You didn't have many choices. And the choices would be those two typically. Then, of course... I would sign up and I said, I'll go be an engineer. And I was a hardcore engineer for the first few years of my career. But then I realized that there was one situation that occurred wherein one of the companies I was working for happens to be CompuWare. 
And they had a customer who had an issue. And at that point in time, they basically, the GM then decided to send me to go see if and I can figure out what the issue was and fix it. And that was my first interaction with a customer directly because I was in the back end all the time before that. And it turned out that I actually enjoyed the interaction with a customer because I was sitting down trying to figure out, you know, what exactly transpired, what kind of data had been collected, so on and so forth, to try and understand what the issue was. And then obviously, subsequently, try and see how it can be fixed. So during that process, I realized that I enjoyed what that interaction was. And during the interaction, I also got to understand that there are some features that we didn't have, which I took back to the engineering team and said, hey, here are things that need to be done. And I think this is what I learned. And at that point in time, I recall the engineering guys telling me, hey, this is great feedback, but you know what? It's not as you should give the feedback to, you should send it to product management. I still recall, I said, product management, what the heck was that? And I never knew the existence of a team called product management till that point in time. And so I spoke to the product management folks and the more I talked to them, the more I felt interested in this whole notion of an organization or or these specialized group, which was helping define products and laying out the roadmaps and stuff. So it was that particular interaction that really gave a sense of, I would say, an excitement in me to go out and venture out and try product management. And that's how I moved from being a hardcore engineer into product management. By the way, since we already talked about my wife, I mean, at that point in time, my wife was not too sure if it was a step forward or a step backward. (laughs) And she's a hardcore engineer. Yeah. And we still have that debate, by the way. And she normally always wins. As the saying goes, happy wife, happy life. So not to digress, but the whole notion of product management for me has been kind of an exciting journey from that point on. So it then set me on a path where I felt, you know, just understanding the hardware side was not important and that I also needed to understand the software side. So I started making shifts in my career all through to move into the software side and then, you know, started off to be candid, which I started off on the server side, moved to the software side of the house with systems management, moved into networking. By the way, that's where you and I met, if you recall, in Juniper Networks, and then moved into storage. So my whole journey has been about trying to learn and move you know, to the adjacencies, if I may, to help me understand. And also, you know, give me that excitement of getting up every day and doing something which I completely have not had my fingers in before, but gives me a chance to learn and grow. Absolutely. Yeah. All big brands, right? We were talking about, when I look at your LinkedIn profile and on your background, we're talking about big brands like Sun Microsystems, Silicon Graphics, then you have Overland Storage, then you have Juniper Networks, Oracle, Dell, and now Western Digital, all big brands and big names for sure. So Tell us, because there's always a playbook that has to be in play, which is when folks are making that career transition, yes, there is the technology side of things, as you mentioned, which is you moved from hardware to expanded your scope, moved into system side and the software side. That's more on the technology or technical side of things. But there's also the other aspects that are critical to one's career growth, which is self-awareness, knowing the strengths and weaknesses and when to rely on others 
there's also the other element of looking up to mentors and the right folks who will, quote unquote, pull you at the right time, right? These are all critical elements as well. So just share with our listeners and share, if you can, the playbook along those lines as well. Sure, Vijay. I think for me, the inquisitiveness that one has to have has to be inherent, right? You got to go out and be inquisitive to learn and grow. And that is something that I think each of us has to own. But then beyond that, it's interesting. You talk about mentors. Absolutely true. I've had some fantastic mentors in my life that I've always depended on to, I would say, help me bounce ideas, give me thoughts and suggestions on what else I could do. In fact, scheduled to go meet one of my mentors for the last 20 years, somebody by the name of John Shoemaker, who is the chairman of Extreme Networks and was a fantastic leader back in my days at Sun. Somebody I still count on as a fantastic mentor who actually helps me bounce ideas, gives me the wisdom of all his learnings too. Right? As the saying goes, I mean, if somebody else has learned and you know they can help propel your learning you know, that much faster and further, why not leverage it? Yeah, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Absolutely. And there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. And the best part of actually talking to the mentors is also that, you know, when they share some of the lessons they have learned and the mistakes they've made, I don't have to make the same set of mistakes. I'm bound to make new ones. And I'm okay with that. And I think each of us has to be aware that we'll always make mistakes. And you will inherently have to go back in, you know, you probably will fall, but you'll have to learn to get up and move on. But that's essentially the power of the mentors. And there's something else that I think is not typically well articulated and talked about, but I also think it's important to have sponsors in your life. Sponsors are people who will actually be ready to also pitch for you when you're not around. And that's something else that I've learned is kind of crucial, is to also have some sponsors in life who will be big believers in you, not just to give you advice, but also to talk on your behalf and position you for maybe the right opportunity, the right role, so on and so forth. So it's something else I would absolutely encourage everyone to think about. Yeah, I think terrific piece of advice for sure. So switching gears a bit now, talking about your current role, you lead product management and product marketing with a fairly sized business. I think I think a fairly large size business. We talked about, I think, during our prep meeting, you mentioned it's $9 billion plus. Did I get those right? That's right. Okay. And then you also talked about the team size, which is 100 plus people in that organization of yours. So talk to us about who you serve. When I say who you serve, I'm talking about your customers, your partners, your team, your peers, your executives. Like Who do you serve? And more importantly, how do you prioritize, ensure that all the stakeholders are aligned? Sure. There are multiple facets to your question, Vijay. So let me try and unpack it one layer at a time. Basically, for the fundamental question of who do I serve, the answer always has to be for each of us, our customers. There's no other way of looking at it because ultimately, you know, whether you are a business that's just a few million dollars in the making to multi-billion dollars in the making, you are out there to go out and serve your customers and help solve some of their business problems, which is where you come in with a solution. So that's never lost on me that, you know, it is our customers that we have to go serve. And all through across 
my journey for the last three decades now, that's been a fundamental building block for everything that I think I've aspired to do, is to sit down and ensure that we address the customer issues and problems wherein you have with your big ears, listening to what could be the challenges that the customers are going through. So with that said, once you have that covered, then you have to go rework whatever needs to be done internally to address that. And this is where you, I mean, I partner with our you know, CTO organization, with our engineering organization, with our sales organization and the support organizations to ensure that we actually have what it takes to go ahead and you know, provide the necessary product-less solution for our customers. And they become my partners in crime per se to enabling us get to where we should be, right? Those are the mechanics that you know, I go through along with the team of my colleagues who are all, you know, propelled by the same set of ideas and cause to go make sure that we actually meet those objectives that we are setting out to. That's one piece of it. But then I, again, there is the adjacencies that I don't want to forget, right? And this is where you have to work with other partner organizations. And this is where I look at organizations who probably provide our PCBs, our SOCs. I mean, there's a whole plethora of things. We depend on the ecosystem of partners and that cannot be lost out as well. And, and then if you extend on the whole distribution stuff I talked about, you have your resellers and channel partners and others. So there are partners that you bring into the fold to help you build the right product slash solution. And then of course, there's other piece, which is we talk about the fourth leg of the go-to-market, which is the whole channel to go help in the distribution of the end product. So that's something else too that needs to be done and who are part and part and parcel of the whole planning and execution process for the whole product introduction. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely and holistically agree with you, right? Because I've been fortunate enough to actually speak with founders, speak with investors, speak with go-to-market leaders across the spectrum, small, large, mid-sized businesses. It doesn't really matter. But the common thread that connects all of them is the customer outcome focus. I think first and foremost, right? So if you talk about the early days of a company, if you speak with the founder, it's a primary research, the customer discovery, the lean startup model, which is all about going and studying the problems and then coming back and testing out the different hypotheses around the solution, hypotheses around how you position and package the pricing, and then your go-to-market aspects as well. And the same applies even to a more mature, a larger organization. So it really doesn't matter if you are like a 50K, 100K, 100 million, 1 billion, or even a 10 or 50 billion. It's the same principle, same mantra, which is customer outcome focus. 100% agreed. Yeah, absolutely. So that's great to hear. It's a good reinforcement. So for all the listeners, it's about if you're not spending your time on customer outcome focus, please, please, please do that. That's primary focus. So along those lines, I have a question for you, Ravi. So I get that part. I mean, you leading an organization, you're clearly out there studying the market. But how do you reinforce to your team across product management, across product marketing, that whole customer outcome focus? Now, do you encourage or do you have any programs around, hey, go out there, do your primary research and secondary research? Like, how do you build those muzzle in your organization? Yeah, it's interesting you ask, which across my times in the various organizations, 
One of the things that's something that I've learned quite a bit is you have to have, again, I use the word big ears to keep listening. You listen to what is being said, and then you bring that back into what it means. There's a distinction between what is being said and what it means because you they're not probably all the same at the same time, not because of anything else, but each of the customers, if you think about it, they are looking at a different, they're looking through a different lens. They're not looking through, for example, if you, you know, if you talk to a financial organization, they are looking at how do they make the financial I know, transactions safe, secure, so on and so forth. They're not thinking about the various elements in the backend technology as to how that happens. That's our job. So they might be focused on one element. They might be speaking to something, but then it's our job to build a bridge between how they are trying to look at the issue and the challenge and bring it back home as to how we can go build the right products or solution to help them enable that. And so with that, it's important that we actually go get those inputs from various forums. And the reason I say that is at times you probably are well off by sending a survey, right? It probably has a set of questions with choices to make, so on and so forth. But you get a very high level rudimentary view, but that is not sufficient, but it gets you started. But then we also do what we call as blind studies, right? Wherein they don't know who's actually asking for this study because at times who is asking for that study can also skew the responses. So you at times, we have done the practice of doing blind studies so they don't really know which organization is asking for this. And then they're more apt at actually giving you some candid feedback. It's very, you know, one of the, as much as we all ask for feedback, usually human beings don't like to give you negative feedback if it is kind of masked with some level of really not knowing who that is and stuff, they're more open to giving you feedback. And again, that's, that's just the nature of the beast and how we work through. So those blind studies are something else we have used to go get some more double click, you know, getting people in a room, just having them talk through it. So you get a little more, you can, you know, you get a little more depth in that. Then finally, of course, the other thing we have done very successfully is we spend hours or days with some of the customers to ensure that we can actually unpack a lot of things that can't be done just by, you know, by a roundtable conversation or a survey. So my point being that you have to use multiple tools in your tool bag to go ahead and try and make sure that you truly understand, you know, what is it that we have to solve for? And this becomes more important when time to market is becoming crucial. And the time to market, you know, needs are actually shrinking. I mean, what I think when I started three decades ago, there would be a time when, you know, to get a new product or a feature, it could take you two years. But today, I'll tell you honestly, some of the product spins that we got to do is probably coming down into multiple quarters. So when there's time to market pressure, there are TCO pressures coming in because the customers do care about the total cost of ownership. They're looking at, it's just not about, Let's say if I take a server, it's just not about, you know, what kind of processing capability it has. There are other things too that go behind it. You know, what is the power consumption? Does it needs more cooling? Are we able to do better analysis from a remote location without having somebody going there in case there is an issue, so on and so forth. And that's how companies are beginning to have more finite, granular TCO measurement tools, which have evolved over the period of time. So you've got to think through all those different elements to making sure that 
we are just not asking the customers, but we're able to unpack what is it they're saying and bring it back to our roadmap design. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that is critical, right? So you mentioned quite a few things over there and I don't want to repeat for the sake of repeating, but again, it comes down to using the different tools and mechanisms for understanding your customers for customer outcomes. I think that that's a key message you want to hone in on. Absolutely. Good stuff. So let's shift gears a bit. I definitely do want to come back into how we are looking into 2021 and 2022 goals. But before that, as you and I know, and you mentioned this earlier, which is there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Others can learn from someone else, make mistakes or success stories. So in that spirit, can you share go-to-market success story, either from your days today at Western Digital or from your previous? Oh, sure. I mean, in terms of a good success story, I mean, I would take the example of at least my time at Dell. One of the things I still recall at that point in time when I joined the company, the company was shipping servers for over two decades, but we were never number one. So we had the task and we took the goal upon to go out and see how we can change that to become the number one server provider in the industry. And that's when, as a team, we banded together, very proud of the team for how we came down to re-looking at the roadmap, you know, looking at you know, where the market was headed and listening to what the customers needed, whether it was about systems management, was it it was it important for GPUs as the advent of AI machine learning became important? The questions of whether it is one or two GPUs they need, working with the right partners to ensure that we have the right technology brought in, working with the kind of CPU vendors that you know were out there looking at where could this market be trending? And do we expect this to move ahead and continue to grow? Was there going to be adjacent markets that were going to take growth, for example, you know, was there edge computing coming in play? So those were the kind of things that we really looked back and said, okay, here is what makes sense. We tried to, you know, completely lay all the data we had. And I deliberately use the word data because you have to be data-driven. You can't be emotionally attached to ideas and concepts and, you know, brought the whole concept of customer-centric innovation Again, looking at it from the lens of the customer, making sure that you know we are able to go back in and plan a portfolio, looking at the various elements that I just mentioned, to have the most robust roadmap in the industry and with the highest quality. You know, working with colleagues in engineering, making sure that we were able to bring the right product set, the partner ecosystem, as I talked about. And when that really came through, it really did make a difference. Because we were listening to our customers, as I said, hearing to our ecosystem partners. And, you know, it just helped us go back and take the number one slot. Or should I say, if we had the opportunity to go back and relook at this stuff, build the right portfolio, get to number one. And so it does help when, you know, we as a team sit down and do what we need to do in terms of listening, collecting the data, making the right calls in the roadmap, and working with with your partners because this is a team sport. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it comes back to the customer outcome focus. 
which you and I talked about, right? And you built that muscle at Dell and you had big numbers. If I got the numbers right, I think during your time there, you are part of the success story where you grew the server and uh, related business from $11 billion to $19 billion. So those are big numbers. Again, a testament to building that muscle around customer focus and customer outcome focus. Now on the flip side, can you share a go-to-market failure story? Oh, all right. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be plenty. It's, it's about uh, picking out the most relevant for now in our conversation. Absolutely, Vijay. I absolutely do. Whoever said life is only about ups, there are plenty of downs to deal with. It's a sinusoidal wave, as we know, ups and downs. So one of the examples I could probably take a talk about is during my days at Sun Microsystems. And if you recall, this is a company that gave the world Java. It gave the world, you know, some of the best possible workstations in based on Unix. And it was a company that could never do wrong. And again, very proud of my association with Sun, though talking about some of the lessons learned and things that we could have done better. A few things. Number one, this was when Linux was still in its infancy. And we had an operating system called Solaris, which our customers loved, especially the financial industry and the, and the telco space loved it. And when you think about it, in this particular market, it was all about having the most trustworthy hardware. And that was based on Spark. That was a processor and the operating system as in the form of Solaris. What we did not do was do not read the trends moving towards open source. So we could have easily gone ahead then and looked at an open Solaris model where I think Linux wouldn't have then taken off. Or on the flip side, instead of Spark used, let's say, an x86 platform, or we could have done open Solaris. My point being that we continue to believe in a proprietary stack rather than moving towards an open stack. And why is this relevant even today is if you really look at the industry, I mean, look at the number of things that really depend on an open stack portfolio. And we were in the forefront. We should have, we could have, we did not. That's at least one man's opinion as to how I think we should have learned. And likewise, where we had Java, I don't necessarily think we monetized this as much as we should. Right. And there was a progress in going to open source, but then the monetization. is a piece that we did. Exactly. Did not look at. Right. This is where, again, you know, it's a nice way of looking at looking at the entire portfolio, but also look at the trends. Make sure that you have an ear on the ground, always looking to and getting the pulse from the market so that we can just go ahead and do what is right for just not the customers, but for ourselves too. I think that's probably some good lessons learned. Excellent. All right. So coming back to the question where I put a pin earlier, which is how are you looking at your 2021? I mean, now that we are in Q4 of 2021, let's talk about the 2022 goals, how are you looking broadly? Now, not to share any confidential information, of course, but broadly, how are you looking at 2022 goals for you and your team and Western Digital? And more importantly, how are you thinking about the execution pieces? If you can share that. This might seem a little boring for you. Customer focus. <laughs> I mean, there you go. I mean, so the couple of things when I look at where we're headed, it is said I mean, customer focus, making sure that we learn from what's going on in the industry. It's not lost on us that the amount of data being stored continues to grow. It is said that each one of us is probably storing two to two and a half times more data this year than the last year, and you're going to do it the next year. 
Right. My point is that's happening in our personal lives, which is why you probably have smartphones today with more memory than you ever had in the past. But if you go back and because it's pictures, videos, whatnot, but if you really look at organizations too, you know, if you really look at the fact that most organizations today, I know, want to do more analytics on how the customers are buying or interacting with them. That means they need more data to be collected, to be analyzed. And people talk about AI machine learning, right? Machine learning or deep learning. What is it really based on? It's based on data. So deep learning means you're actually going to go back and analyze a lot more data than what you would do as against machine learning. My point is, if you look at any of these trends, if you look at IoT, if you look at edge computing, where there's more data, it's said that 75% of the data approximately is going to be generated outside of the data center, which means that there's more data being created. For us, it means we got to go provide our customers more ways and better technologies to store the data. So the way I look at this, you know, every way I see it, data is going to be created more in the next few years than in the last couple of decades. And what that means is we, as Western Digital, have to provide the right mechanisms to store the data, which is where I think we have a unique proposition, unlike anybody else in the industry, where we have the best of both flash and hard drives, and which gives us the unique opportunity to be, I would say, the first choice for any of our customers looking at storing data for their, for their own business purposes. So having said that, we at Western Digital are focused on making sure that we provide the right set of choices for our customers. And if I just look at the hard drives, we got everything from one terabyte hard drives, let's say all the way to 20 terabyte drives, and we'll continue to grow it. Because again, when more data is needed, you gotta go provide better technologies that our customers can depend on. And we're going to focus, it's interesting you ask, because we introduced something called Optinand recently. Optinand technology focuses on three things. It's basically helping grow the capacity, performance, and reliability of our drives. And we do that by vertically integrating both our flash technology with our hard drive. So that's the best part of what we're trying to do. And we're going to continue to do that. And you'll see all I'd say is coming attraction of some of the cool products we're going to introduce quarters ahead. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely an exciting time, right? Especially if you're in the world of compute, storage, or networking. It's absolutely exciting time. Yes, for consumers and a lot of folks outside, they may not see it, but everything that's actually driving and facilitating these experiences that they use both at the business side as well as on the personal side, taking a photo and storing it, or making those conversations using your favorite communication tool, it actually comes down to these three, compute, storage, and networking. You got it. Yeah, and absolutely. And you said it right. I mean, storage is critical. Yes, you can have the compute and networking, but at the end of the day, it's still storage. Got to store. Yeah, got to store it somewhere, of course. So definitely, I'm excited by what's in store, the big picture and the vision. But if we narrow down your focus to 2022, right? what do you see are the barriers for executing against that big picture vision? The barriers for us are truly are, honestly, we are dealing with some of the component shortages. So how do we go make sure that it's not just our industry, but across the various industries? What is it? Reading a recent article about $230 billion worth of cars have been affected are the shipping issues that we have, wherein I think we just saw recently, the last 24 to 48 hours, where you now they said they're going to have the Los Angeles 
port open 24 by 7. So it's those kind of things that we didn't foresee in the past that we have got to work through to ensuring that we have the right you know, components, making sure that we're able to move parts from point A to point B. I think those are the things that I think are ways and challenges that we have to overcome. And again, as I said, it's not unique to our own industry, but I think this is something that we across on a global scale see this for all kinds of organizations. So that's the thing that I pay attention to. And I know we are working through, there's some talented members who are working through these, making sure that we come up with unique and uh, know alternative ways of dealing with that. But that's something that I would be amiss if I didn't say it's something that we're going to keep a close eye on. Because if I really look at the opportunity to where the market is headed in terms of storage, I mean, it's a huge opportunity. I mean, the regulatory needs in each of the countries that are asking for more data to be stored and stuff essentially drives more need for storage. I mean, it's interesting, you know, I was just looking back, I still recall when I was starting off, we used to have, remember looking at a 75 megabyte hard drive and you had platters, you know, that seemed to be sitting in a washing machine, huge platters, and you would just plop them out. But today, I mean, on a one inch drive, you have an ability to store 10 to 20 terabytes. So that's fascinating by itself. So the innovation, the market need is there, but now some of these other elements that I don't think most industries saw it earlier are just upon us. Just talking to somebody who's been in the, in the whole supply chain management for the last few decades, person was talking about the fact that they have never seen this kind of supply chain challenges in their entire career. So that's something that I think we will obviously get out of it, but I think there are going to be a lot of learnings for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think supply chain issues are hitting different and various industries across the board. And clearly, when, especially in the hardware industry and hardware manufacturing setup, where you're relying on supply chains, on the chipset, on the memory modules and different pieces being produced outside of the US, those have to come in, right? So those are definitely big challenges. And that's going to take maybe a year or two for things to settle down or come back to quote unquote normal. So those are things that are technically speaking, outside your control. But talking about things that are more in your control, looking at 2022, if you were to invest five, six, or even seven-figure budget or team, where would you put that focus or energy? The most place, important place is always making sure that we know where the market is headed. The focus will always be to understand the market. Because if you don't understand where the market is headed, Anything else you do, you could come up with the best messaging possible. But if you don't know where the market is headed, you might not come up with the right messaging to that particular situation. That's where I would do. My focus is making sure that you know we focus on where the market is headed. And in this case, if I really think about it, as we talked about data, right? The more people store data, people are also looking at archiving the data. So how do we come up with the right archiving methodologies so that it's just not cost efficient for our customers, but also faster to retrieve. So that is, I think, an exciting place. And we call it cold storage, for example. So those are some of the things that I would absolutely say are going to become very crucial for us. So just to reiterate, so are you saying that you're going to put more like time or money or people into those areas, specifically like 
customer advisory board, which I'm sure you must be doing already. But in addition to that, it's about, again, going back to the primary research and secondary research tools, right? That's how you actually stay close to the different market trends. Absolutely right. It's about how do you store more data? How do you make sure it's reliable? And you get it at a faster pace because you might have the data, but if you don't get it back in a timely fashion, (laughs) it's no value. So you want to be sure that you're able to go build the right tools and technologies in to be able to retrieve the data quickly too. So those are the kind of things we want to answer, Vijay. And that's where we got to focus on. Okay, excellent. And that's where the excitement is. And that's where we at WD are absolutely excited. Good stuff. So bringing it home, I know I need to be cognizant of your time here. So bring it home. One final question to you is, if you were to turn back clock and go back to day one of your go-to-market journey, going back to your computer days, but then you transitioned from being an engineer into product management, So what advice would you give your younger self, Ravi? You don't know a lot. I honestly don't think I knew as much as I thought I knew. My point is, it becomes fascinating and interesting when you look back and think that you knew exactly what the product is. You knew exactly what feature functionality should be brought out when. I think I was pretty naive thinking that I had the answers. And as you grow, as you mature, you realize there are so many facets to how you build a successful product and how you sustain it. Because the question is, it can't be a flash in the pan. You've got to sustain it for a period of time. And there are lessons that I've learned. And I continue to be a student for life. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of lessons to be learned. But don't ever underestimate the needs of the market and think and become comfortable believing that you know everything there is to it because you simply won't. Yeah, that's what I call and refer to as being intellectually honest, that that's the first step. And then you complement that and you add on the curiosity element to it. Absolutely. And which is where I would say, Vijay, is continue to stay humble. Yep. On that note, thank you so much, Ravi. It's been a fun, great and insightful conversation. Good luck to you and your team and we'll cheer you from the sidelines. Thank you, Vijay. Much appreciated. Hi there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders podcast. I have all of the show notes and a full transcript on strata.com. S-T-R-A-T-Y-V-E.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get a podcast. Leave a rating and a review. Your comments will help other go-to-market professionals find this podcast. Thank you.